All right, Shabbat Shalom. Uh, we are going to be in the Torah portion of Bihar. Bihar means on the mount. And I always get joy when I read the Torah portion of Bihar. But when I watch The View and listen to Joy Bihar, I don't have any joy at all. I get kind of sick when I listen. Anyway, little joke there. <laughs> so uh, before we start, let's go ahead and... Um, open the Torah portion with a blessing over the reading of the Torah. Baruch at Adonai Hamvarak. Blessed is Adonai, the Blessed One. Baruch Adonai Hamvarak Leolam Vayed. Blessed is Adonai, the Blessed One, for all eternity. Baruch at Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Asher Bakr Banu Mikoha Amim, Venetan Lanu et Torato, Baruch Atadonai, Noten HaTorah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has selected us from all peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. And as it says in Psalm 119.18, which I want this to be our prayer, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your Torah. Heavenly Father, as we dig into your word this morning, we ask, God, that you would just open up our hearts and minds to the infinite wonder, the inexhaustible resource, the depths that can't be plumbed to totality of your word. And help us to know what your word is trying to say to us this morning so we can apply it to our heart and our life and, and, our, and our mind. For we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so this Torah portion is taken from Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1, all the way to chapter 26, verse 2. It's a very short Torah portion, and it's read separately from the other Torah portion called Bechukotai, which is what we're going to be dealing with next week, because this is a leap year. So I love it when we're in a Hebraic leap year, because then we get to deal with the Torah portions a little bit more intricately and intimately. And so that's what we're doing with Bahar. Now, to kind of summarize the Torah portion of Bahar, it says that the Lord gave these, these instructions, these laws to Moses on Mount Sinai. Well, that's kind of a no-brainer. Wasn't all the laws given on Mount Sinai? Yes. But the thing about the book of Deuteronomy is that Moses reiterated the law. He repeated the law. Deuteronomy means a second telling. And so he kind of rehashed the Torah and kind of added detail that wasn't there in what we're reading here in Leviticus and other parts of the Torah because you had a whole new generation that was not at Mount Sinai when the Torah was given. So they had to understand the law, but also the meaning and intricacies behind the law before they took over the promised land. And interestingly enough, besides the Psalms, Yeshua quotes from the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book. So Deuteronomy was Jesus, was Yeshua's favorite book of Moses. And it's the one, I mean, that he kind of wrote himself. I mean, it's a second telling of the law, which I think is really interesting. So to summarize this Torah portion, we're dealing with the sabbatical and the jubilee years. So Israel as a nation, uh, just like we have a weekly Sabbath, and every six days we work, at the seventh we rest, so too the land of Israel was to be you know, uh, sown, reaped, plowed, harvested for six years. And on the seventh year, it was to lie fallow. And God said, don't worry, I'm going to provide for you. You know, the sixth, the sixth year, which was supposed to be the most depleted year because the soil was all used up from the years prior, all the nutrients and stuff, they would have a miraculous crop that would provide for them until the sabbatical year was over. So it was a major trust issue with the Israelites. Do you trust God to say he's going to do what he's going to do? Because by human logic and scientific standards, it's impossible to have a bumper crop, a great crop in the last year because it, the soil's just not good enough. 
but the Lord did it anyway and provided for Israel. Now, just as, you know, the Lord will punish those who don't keep his commandments, and we kind of do things we're not supposed to do on the Sabbath, and we kind of pay for them, Israel paid for not allowing the land to rest. Because eventually they were taken off into Babylonian captivity, and God said, I'm going to keep you for 70 years in Babylonian captivity, so the land will pay, be paid back for all the Sabbath rest. You refuse to give the land. So I thought that was pretty interesting as well. And so we have the sabbatical year, which was every seven years. And then you have seven sabbatical years, which is 49 years. And the 50th is a jubilee year. And what was different is all the same things of the sabbatical year applied to the jubilee year, except in the jubilee year, if you, because you were on hard times and you had to sell some of your land in order to get by financially, you know, uh, and you had to, the land and property had to change hands. In the year of Jubilee, the land was reverted back to its original landowners. Because after all, when the promised land was divvied up, every tribe, every clan, every family got an allotment of land. And it was their land. It wasn't supposed to be sold or given away, especially to Gentiles, non-Jews. But the Lord said, if you fall on hard times and you have to sell part of your land, don't worry. You're going to get it. If you can't reclaim it, you know, uh, you know, save money and reclaim it later, it will be reverted back to you in the 50th year, the year of Jubilee. Those who had to, uh, fell on such hard times, they had to sell themselves into indentured servitude. If they were unable to redeem themselves in the interim, they would be set free during the year of Jubilee. Even those who had pierced their ear to the door and said, I'm going to be a slave for life, even they were set free in the year of Jubilee. So, uh, Usually we would start in Leviticus chapter 25 because it's our Torah portion, but I want to go back a little further and start actually in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verses, uh, starting at verse 31. So we're going to set up uh, some patterns here. I want, to, want you to see some things that, that come out in Scripture. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and we're going to go to chapter 2, verse 3, says, So God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. It was perfection. And it says, so there was evening and then there was morning the sixth day. God finished with his creation. He sat back and said, ah, this is good. I'm going to sit back and rest and enjoy what I just made. And it reminds me of when I was little and I would play like Ninja Turtles with my nephew. We would spend probably a half hour to an hour setting up the whole scene. I, I had these computer, these, uh, you know, remember the, the, uh, printers that had the uh, little dot matrix, you know, and the, 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 the paper was kind of uh, stitched together and it went through the printer or whatever, and you had those big boxes of paper. Well, I'd take those boxes and make like a sewer scene or, you know, a city scene or something like that and make little scenes for the, make a play set, basically. So we would spend all this time setting up and putting the, the Ninja Turtles here and the bad guys here, and we'd sit back and we'd look at it, and we'd be, oh, this looks so awesome. This looks so cool. We created this little world, these scenes. And then I look at my nephew and say, do you want to play Ninja Turtles? No, I just want to look at it. <laughs> you know? So that's kind of what God did. He created everything. He says, I just want to look at this. It's very, very good. So chapter 2 says, so the heavens and the earth were completed along with their entire array, and God completed on the seventh day his work that he had made. And he ceased on the seventh day from all the work he had made. Didn't have to rest. He was God. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He, he's all powerful. But he rested because he wanted to set a precedent and an example for us. 
So we see that there was this perfection in creation, and God institutes a, a, a weekly pattern, six days on, one day off. But we see this perfection was, was eventually corrupted, just like a computer. You get a brand new computer, you get it set up the way you want to and everything, and you're using it. But as you use it, you know, maybe you, you click on something that, that you didn't mean to click on, and then all of a sudden you got a Trojan you got a virus or, you know, as things start acting a little wonky, it gets a little old and, and things are, and, and it just doesn't work the same. It's corrupted. And, you know, if you can't take the viruses and the Trojans out, and if you can't fix it, then sometimes you have to go back to factory settings. You have to just take it back to like when it first came out of the box to reset it to factory settings. And God kind of sees the same thing with this world and this earth. Because of sin, it has been corrupted. It has been corrupted and degraded, and it doesn't work the same. It doesn't work like it's supposed to when he first created everything. So eventually, he's going to return this earth back to its factory settings. So in Genesis chapter 3, we see this corruption of this perfect world take place in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. But the serpent was shrewder than any animal of the field that Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, had made. So he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from all the trees of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Of the fruit of the trees we may eat. But the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat of it, and you must not touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, Oh, you most assuredly wouldn't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that, 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 that it was a thing that was a lust for the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to impart wisdom. So she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew, as we say in the South, they were naked. Not naked, naked. We say naked. They were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings or aprons. And they heard the sound of Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, going to and fro in the garden in the wind of the day. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Adonai Elohim in the midst of the trees of the garden. And Adonai Elohim called to the man and he said to him, where are you? It was a rhetorical question. It's not like God didn't know. He knew, but he wanted Adam to confess where he was and to realize where he was. And then he said, your sound I heard in the garden and I was afraid because I am naked and, and I hid myself. Then he says, wait a second, who told you that you were naked? He didn't ask why he was naked. He said, who told you you were naked? So he was saying, Adam, I know there's another intelligence at play in this scenario. You just didn't come on this natural revelation by yourself. Somebody had to reveal this to you. Who was it? I know who it was, but do you know who it was, right? So he says, who told you that you were naked? Uh, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, uh, uh, the woman. Yeah, the woman you gave to me. The one you created for me, out of my side, my helpmate, your gift to me, it's your fault, God. It's the gift you gave me. That's basically what he's saying. He says, then the man, uh, the woman you gave to me, she gave me the tree and I ate. And Adonai Elohim said to the woman, what did you do? 
what did you do? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Okay, we'll just go ahead and stop right there. We lost our lease on this earth. Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This earth is God's. It's his. But he said, you know what? I created it for man to live in. I'm going to give you the, the, the managerial ownership of this land, the stewardship of this land. You're going to manage this land. Because in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, he tells us to take dominion, cultivate the land, tame the animals, you know, become farmer, become herdsman, take control of this earth, tame this earth and use it for your needs. But we see that after the fall, the lease, we defaulted on this lease in a way. We gave up this lease, and this lease was passed on to Satan. Because what did Satan say to Yeshua, to Jesus in the temptation? He said in the desert, he says, look at all this world. Look at all of the kingdoms. It's mine for me to give to whoever I please, and I'll give it to you. It's the quick track to be Messiah. You don't have to die. You don't have to, you don't have to do all that. You're doing it the hard way. Let's cut some corners here. Let me help you out. Just, just give me a little bow. Just a little curtsy is all I ask, and I'll give it to you. You'll, you'll automatically rule the world. You won't have to go through what you're going through. And then in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says that Satan is the lowercase g. He's the god of this world. And Ephesians 2.2 says he is the prince and the power of the air. So we lost the lease of this land. It's just like in the year of Jubilee. We fell on hard times, and it, and it was given to somebody else. Somebody else took it over, and we're homeless. We're in servitude now. But you know what? There's still hope. There's hope of a redemption. Because in Genesis 3.15, it's called the Proto-Evangelion or the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. It says, God is telling Adam and Eve, I will put animosity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent. Between your seed, the seed of the serpent, and her seed which I think is a very odd thing to say because women do not have seed. And yet a virgin conceived <laughs> without seed of a man in birthed Messiah. So I'll put animosity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. So, so there's a hope of, of, of redemption. And just as we're going to read in the Torah portion, there's a principle of a kinsman redeemer. If I... And, this, and this, this happened in Jeremiah's time. And this is the half Torah portion for, for this Torah portion. Is Jeremiah, he's sitting in prison because the king got ticked off at the prophecy he said. He said, look, king, Babylon's going to come and he's going to march all over you and wipe you guys out and take you off into captivity. And, and everything's going to be destroyed. How dare you? You're speaking treason against the kingdom. So he put him in jail. And so it's inevitable that Babylon's going to come in, regardless of what the king did or whatever. It's still going to happen. And yet his cousin said, hey, Jeremiah, I know you're in prison. I know things look pretty bad right now, but you're the next in line to purchase my, my field. I want you to be the kinsman redeemer and purchase my field. Think how ridiculous that is. The dude's in prison, and yet his cousin is wanting him to buy his property that's going to be taken over by the Babylonians anyway? What's the point? 
The point was is that a legal document was drafted. One was one was saved and, and, and sealed, and the other one was for public notice to say, yep, Jeremiah rightfully has, has fulfilled the role of the kinsman redeemer and has redeemed this land from his cousin. Jeremiah was saying, look, yeah, you're going to go off into captivity. Yeah, you're going to go off into Babylon. But 70 years later, we're going to come back. And this deed is, is my uh, declaration of hope that this prophecy is going to come true. That I didn't buy this land for nothing. I didn't redeem this land for nothing. We're going to come back here and this land is going to be in my family again. And so that's hope for us because we lost this world. But yet this world is going to be given back to us someday. We have that hope. We have that kinsman redeemer in Messiah Yeshua. So now let's get in actually to our Torah portion, which is Leviticus chapter 25. In Leviticus chapter uh, 25, we're going to, let's go to uh, verse 25 uh, through 28. It says, if your brother becomes poor and sells some of his property, then his nearest kinsman may come and redeem what his brother has sold. So we just kind of discussed that with Jeremiah and his cousin, right? If a man has no kinsman redeemer, but he himself recovers and finds sufficient means to redeem it, then let him reckon the years it, um, since its sale and restore the surplus to the man who sold it. Then he will return to his property. So basically it's a prorated. You estimate how many harvests are going to happen between that time and the year of Jubilee, and you pay the man for the harvests that it, that's going to come out of it, that's prorated. Verse 28 but he is, if he is not able to get it back for himself, then what he has sold is to remain in the hand of the one who bought it until the year of Jubilee. Then in the Jubilee, it should be released so that he may return to his property. And then jumping down to verse 35, we're dealing with property. Now we're dealing with personal freedom. If your brother has become poor and his hand cannot support himself among you, then you are to uphold him. He may live with you like an outsider or a temporary resident. Take no excessive interest from him. So as believers, we are forbidden to charge interest to each other if we borrow money from each other. And, and the way the Hebrew talks about charging interest, the way the Hebrew reads is you're biting into that other person's provision when you charge interest. So interest is actually eating alive the other person in a financial way. Take no excessive interest from him, but fear your God. So that your brother can live with you. You are not to lend him your money at interest, nor give him food for profit. I am Adonai your God, who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother has grown poor among you and sells himself to you, he becomes an indentured servant, right? A slave. You must not subject him to slave labor. In other words, I want you to build this fence. That's okay. I want you to fetch my slippers and put them on me. That's not okay. You know, don't give him work that would be humiliating. Let him stay with you as a hired worker or as a temporary resident, and he will work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he is to be released from you, he and his children with him, and may return to his own family and to his property and his father's. They are my servants. I like that. The Lord said, they're my servants. Yeah, they may be your slaves right now, your indentured servants, but ultimately they're my servants before they're your servants. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. 
You are not to uh, be sold in a slave sale. You are not to rule over them with harshness, but fear the Lord your God. So basically, it's better for a Hebrew to buy another Hebrew as a slave than to have that Hebrew be sold into foreign slavery where he will be subjected to pagan religions and pagan ideologies and, and immorality, which would draw him away from, from God and from the Messiah, from the Lord. Uh, so it's better to you know take care of your own. This was part of God's welfare system. They didn't depend on the king or the judges or the prophets or the priests to provide when somebody fell on hard times. There was a welfare system of resets. And we're hearing this today in the news, the great reset. You will own nothing and you will be happy. We're going to go to a cashless society and everybody's going to get a stipend and blah, 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 blah. It's Satan's counterfeit to God's reset. Oh, let's take God's word and let's improve on it. Uh, really? You can't improve on what's divine. God's word is perfect. He had a perfect system, and we thought we could improve on it? Come on now. Come on, man. Yeah. So, you know, this whole great reset that the government's talking about and the world leaders are talking about is a, is a counterfeit of, of this. And you know what? I bet you they're going to try to spin it as, you know, we're just trying to do what the Bible says. We see the wisdom in this. They're going to try to spin it to look like a godly thing, and if you don't participate in it, then you're not a good believer. I, I guarantee that that's how they're going to spin this. Yeah. So, um, but we have hope. We will eventually get the earth back. We'll eventually get the earth back. So, in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 12, we read this. You are to count off seven Sabbaths of years. Seven times seven years, so that the time is seven Sabbaths of a year. Forty-nine years. And on the tenth day of the seventh month, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement is also known as the Day of Redemption because Jubilee is when you're redeeming your property. You're redeeming these things that you lost. You are to sound a shofar blast, and a shofar is a ram's horn. You are to sound the shofar for all throughout your land. You are to make the 50th year holy and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It is to be a Jubilee to you. When each of you is to return to his own property, and, uh, and each of you is to return to his family, that 50th year will be your jubilee. You are not to sow or reap that which grows of itself or gather from the untended vines. Since it is a jubilee, it is holy to you. You will eat from the increase out of the field. Okay, I think we'll stop right there. I read a little bit more than what I wanted to read, but that's okay. And I would like to relate this passage and especially paying attention to proclaim it by the blowing of the trumpet. Proclaim this liberty, proclaim this redemption, proclaim this freedom by the blowing of the ram's horn. There's going to come a day when we're going to hear a ram's horn. We're going to hear a divine heavenly ram's horn, and we are going to be redeemed from this fallen world. We're going to be redeemed from this fallen creation. So it says in 1 Thessalonians, the letter of Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself shall come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the blast of God's shofar. And the dead in Messiah shall rise first. So Yeshua is going to return not only as Messiah, but he's going to return as our kinsman redeemer. It's going to be announced by the blowing of the shofar. 
Now, I'm not, you know, I believe what God says in his word, that no man knows the day, no man knows the hour of Messiah's return, but the scriptures does say we're going to know the season. And I seem to be convinced that our jubilee is coming. We, we have been alive. I mean, on the Hebrew calendar, it is 5782. So we're almost at 6,000 years. It's almost time for our jubilee. It's almost time for our sabbatical year, so to speak. So does that mean that if it's 5782, that, that the coming of the Lord is soon because the sixth millennium is, is almost up? Is that what that means? And if it's talking about here the return of Christ with the blowing of the shofar, and we know the blowing of the shofar happens on two places in the scripture, on Rosh Hashanah, which is, announces the fall festivals, and, and 10 days after Rosh Hashanah is Yom Kippur, where sometimes the shofar is blown again, the ram's horn, that's the Day of Atonement. Maybe the Lord's going to return on a jubilee year. Maybe he's going to return on the Day of Atonement. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be so awesome. So it's interesting, too, that when Yeshua came the first time, people were expecting him to be that kinsman redeemer and redeem them from Roman occupation, right? But yet, Yeshua was a good Jew. He was a good Jewish boy. He was at synagogue every Sabbath. And one Sabbath, he was called up to read the Torah, or the half Torah portion. So in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and this is right after the temptation in the wilderness, right after he kicked Satan's butt in that temptation. It says, Yeshua returned in the power of the Spirit, and the power of the Ruach to Galilee. And news about him went all throughout the surrounding regions. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone was praising him. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been raised, as was his custom. As was his custom, he went into the synagogue on Sabbath, which tells you that Jesus was in the synagogue every Sabbath day. And he got up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And what he was reading was Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 11. That's what Jesus was reading during this day. And he said he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord, or the Ruach Adonai, is on me. Because he has anointed, and that word anointed is, is Mashiach. He anointed me to proclaim good news, the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of Adonai's favor. I'm wondering if Yeshua was reading this half Torah portion or this passage during a jubilee year or a sabbatical year. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. And he's basically saying, I am the kinsman redeemer. I am the jubilee because he's like, I, he says, he sent me to proclaim release to the captives. So the year, the year of Jubilee, the, the year of liberty. So we will eventually uh, get the earth back. And Yeshua is our kinsman redeemer. So the pattern that we see is the weekly Sabbath. Six days you work, seventh day you rest. Year-wise, you have six years of work, one year where the land lies fallow. 50 years, so seven times seven, seven sabbatical years equal, you know, 49 years in the 50th is a jubilee year, which we already read about. Israel lost the land because they broke God's laws and failed to observe the sabbatical year. 
and God paid the land back and punished Israel. And we'll find evidence for this in, uh, let's see here, in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Little patience while I turn there. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 20 and 21. He exiled to Babylon those who had escaped the sword, and they became slaves to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, in fulfillment of the word of Adonai by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had paid back her Sabbath rests for as long as, as it lay desolate. The Sabbath rest was kept till 70 years were completed. So they missed a lot of sabbatical years because of lack of trust and faith in God's provision, because of greed. I can make more money if I plan on the seventh year, whatever. So 70 years later, the exiles of Judah returned from Babylon to reclaim the land. Now through Adam, we broke God's law and are exiled from Eden. Remember we were kicked out of Eden, we we're exiled. Cherubim were placed around the garden, said you can't come back here. But we will return again, and we will reclaim the land again, because in Revelation chapter 21, we read that wonderful verse that says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Sea always represents chaos in the scripture. And so we see that Revelation 21.1, we will regain the land. And 2 Peter 3.8, it says that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, right? So if that's the case, and it's 5782 on the Hebraic calendar, we're approaching our millennial Sabbath. I mean, what? If, if it's true, we're almost at 6,000 years, which would lead into the sabbatical year, right? So in Revelation chapter 20, Verses 1 through 6, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyss and, the, and a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That sounds like a Sabbath rest to me. That sounds like a jubilee to me. Satan's not around to harass you, tempt you, or bug you, or cause harm, or world, world wars, and whatever, and chaos. Yeah, that sounds like a rest. For a thousand years. So you had a sabbatical year, a whole year where you didn't sow, plant, reap, whatever. Same with the, the jubilee year, right? So if, if, if to the Lord a thousand years is a day, then there's going to be a thousand years, which will be a Sabbath and a jubilee. He also threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. So after a thousand years, a new cycle began, right? You began a new cycle of seven years. After these things, he must be released for a short while. Uh, then it says, Then I saw thrones, and people set upon them, those to whom authority to judge was given. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Yeshua and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image, nor had received the mark on their forehead or in their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Messiah for a thousand years. We're going to get our land back. We're going to get this earth back. Back in an Edenic state, a state of perfection, a factory reset like a computer. No viruses, no Trojans. You know? The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. How fortunate and holy is the one who has a share in the first resurrection. 
Over such, the second death has no authority. But they shall be Kohanim, priests of God and the Messiah, and they shall reign with him for a thousand years. Just as the land and the economy of Israel became corrupted and had to be reset every seven and every 50 years, the earth will be reset. We will return to Eden like the, corrupt, uh, like, uh, like the computer that has to be returned to factory settings. I want to read to you a few more short passages. Yeremiahu, which is the Hebrew way of saying Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. The word came to Jeremiah from Adonai saying, Arise and go to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making a work on a wheel. Whenever, uh, whenever the pot that he was making from the clay flawed in his hand of the potter, he, re he remade it into another pot as it pleased the potter to make. So it kind of reminds me of creation, how, you know, he's making the earth. It got corrupted, right? He's going to have to do it again. <laughs> so he did it with the Noadic flood and everything kind of got reset at the Noadic flood, though it was still in a fallen state. And according to the Torah, the way you cleanse something is you wash it twice with water. If it's still not cleansed with two washings of water, you have to cleanse it by fire. It says in Genesis 1.1 that uh, talks about that when the Lord created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There was already a flood that destroyed this pre-edemic earth. That was the first washing. Second washing was the Noadic flood. And the third and final cleansing will be by fire. Because in Revelation 21.1, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That, he that Hebrew and Greek word for new means to be renewed. And 2 Peter 3.10 says that when the earth is destroyed, it's going to melt with a fervent heat. It's going to be purged. It's going to be cleansed by fire. So it's, I just think it's fascinating how there's all these patterns in the scripture and how it all kind of calculates and works out, how it's logical. Just by reading this, how can man himself have written this book? It's too perfect, too intricate. <clears throat> it's definitely God-inspired, definitely divine, definitely God-breathed, if you will. So it gives me hope that no matter what goes on in this world, no matter if we have to face persecution, maybe even, God forbid, martyrdom, though the Lord says that precious is the, in, in the eyes of the Lord is the death, the death of the saints, that we have that promise and that hope of a new heaven and a new earth where everything's going to be renewed, everything's going to be reset. Not only the earth, but our bodies. Because when, when we get resurrected, we're not going to have any aches, any pains, any fibromyalgia, any arthritis, any allergies, any addictions. Because we are joint heirs with Christ Jesus. Whatever was Jesus's could be ours. So when he rose with a new body, he rose with a body that could travel at the speed of thought. He, could he, he, he rose with a body that could walk through walls. He rose with a body that would never die again. And the only vestments of this world that he still carries on his body today in heaven that we will see in the world to come is the scars, the payment, the price that he paid for us on his hands and on his feet and on his side. And those are going to be through all eternity. And that's the only thing that's going to be left over from this old world. But yet even our bodies where we will, he will wipe every tear away from our eye, Revelation says, and that we will reign with him. <laughs> that is humbling. Where we're going to be, God's going to give us managerial, uh, 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 you know, uh, perks of this world again in the new world. 
Just as Adam had to work, he was a farmer and a security guard. He tilled the land and he guarded the land, but he didn't guard it very well because he let the serpent in, right? But yet we're going to have jobs and occupations in the world to come, but it's not going to be laborious work. It's going to be joy, stuff we enjoy doing, stuff that we like to do and want to do because we're serving the king. We are working for the greatest boss that ever was or ever will be. And it is going to be great. And my mind can't even fathom that. And just as God promised Israel the land, Ezekiel talks about the, 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 the promised land in the new world and the new earth. And that Israel still gets their inheritance, still gets their plots of land to live on. That's just going to be great. So I hope this was an encouraging Torah portion this week uh, about the ultimate great reset, the eternal great reset, the one that we have to look forward to. So we may be in the sixth day and we're depleted, you know, and, and, and we're about ready to lose hope. But the sabbatical year is coming. The year of Jubilee is coming. And he's going to come with that shout and that shofar that's going to announce it's time, folks. And that's going to be so awesome. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have, the promise and the hope that we have of you being our kinsman redeemer, of eternal redemption, uh, of the redemption not only of our spirits, our souls, our bodies, but the redemption of this world. We thank you that you love and care enough for us that you, you're going to reset everything and you're going to make everything right. And we see things working together and everything's bottlenecking. All the prophecies are starting to, to, to come together and be knit together and we're, we're seeing this, this, this weird puzzle. We're seeing it more clearly and it's coming more into focus. And we're seeing things happen and come to pass right before our very eyes. So we know that your redemption it draws nigh. The scripture commands us, look up for your redemption draws nigh. And Lord, we, we are so looking forward to that day and to that time. And so Lord, we're going to keep plugging on as faithfully as we possibly can. Uh, you said, occupy until I come. Keep busy until I come. Lord, we know your return is, is near and I'm not going to be wasting my time standing on a hill waiting for you to return. I'm going to be working for you. I hope that I have the sword in one hand and a trowel in the other when you come back. I hope my hands are dirty all the way up to the elbows. And I hope that my, my feet are calloused. And I hope that I have sweat on my brow the day you return. That I'm not sitting here twiddling my thumbs. But Lord, I'm doing something and working for you. That is going to be an awesome time. <laughs> I think how excited Fred Flintstone was when he heard that, that bird whistle. And he slid down that dinosaur and went home. Yabba dabba doo. When I hear that shofar, I'm going to say, yabba dabba doo. I'm going home. It's quitting time. And I'm going to enter that eternal rest. And I thank you so much for it, even though I, I certainly don't deserve it. We ask and pray and give thanks for these things in Yeshua's name. And Yavarekaka Adonai Vishmareka. Ya'er Adonai Panavalecha Vekunaka. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Bashem Yeshua Moshienu in the name of Yeshua our Messiah. Amen.